Before we begin this episode of our podcast, a brief message from our sponsor. Vive Funds is a commercial multifamily real estate firm trusted by physician investors, physician families, and busy entrepreneurs from all over the United States. Located in Dallas, Texas, and founded by Vina Jetty, Vive Funds specializes in curating conservative passive real estate investment opportunities for investors. Vina brings a dynamic presence to targeting, acquiring, managing, and operating investment assets using the best time-tested practices combined with cutting-edge technologies. Reach out to Vina and her team at Vive Funds to find out how you can be a successful investor by creating opportunities for you to build your portfolio. You can find them at drpodcastnetwork.com slash Vive Funds. Again, that's drpodcastnetwork.com slash V-I-V-E Funds. Now, the hospital typically will have its call schedule, meaning that it's staffed the emergency room with the appropriate specialties to deliver reasonable emergency care. And as a condition of staff privileges, the hospital will frequently mandate that each individual specialty uh, participate. And some of the hospitals will pay a per diem and the per diem can be quite lucrative to uh, to many of the practitioners there. So what used to be a complete and total burden um, in some in some venues have become a cash cow for doctors, a highly sought after uh, perk, providing ER coverage, getting paid, you know, just to provide this call coverage. So the world has changed uh, significantly. But I do, as a condition of staff privileges. Um, if you don't show up and you're on the call schedule and, or you just say, hey, look, this patient um, can be transferred or can see me in the office. If something happens to that patient, uh, you can and will burn. I mean, you have a contractual, e- even though you have, let's say, for example, the ER calls you up and says, I've got this particular patient. And um, they say, I'd like you to come in and see this patient. If you say, well, look, just based on what you told me, I feel pretty comfortable you can discharge him and send them to my office uh, tomorrow, eight o'clock, be happy to see him there. If, for example, the patient develops a bad outcome, meaning the ER doctor acted on your advice and discharged the patient, and it turned out the patient was not stable and uh, should have been evaluated, you you can and will burn. Um, now, interestingly enough, you have not formally initiated a doctor-patient relationship with with this individual, meaning that you're, you're on the call schedule, you've not seen this patient. At best, the ER doctor has seen the patient and reasonably relied upon your opinion to come up with a conclusion this patient can leave. <clears throat> but even without um, a doctor-patient relationship, I think the fact that you have a contractual obligation um, to be on the call, meaning that you're on the call schedule 
and you have an implied contract with a facility to provide these services, if you make a decision not to show up, it will still be determined, and please correct me if I'm wrong, it'll still be determined that there is a doctor-patient relationship. You chose not to, tr not to see the patient, but ultimately this is your patient because the patient right. was to be seen by your particular specialty. You, you filled that slot um, on the call schedule. You chose not to come in and the ER doctor acted on the phone call that you made. I, I think it would be difficult, if not impossible, to argue, hey, look, we never had a doctor-patient relationship because I never saw this patient. What, what do you think the outcome would be? And do you think it would even vary state by state? No, I, I think I think you're going to lose because in, in your scenario, you're still rendering a medical opinion based off of information. You don't have to physically see the see the patient if you're getting their medical information and, and giving an opinion based on it. Um, you're there. You're <laughs> you've signed on. It's your it's your patient. And if you have the responsibility of being on call and doing that and you don't show up, there's going to be um, liability there and, or or show up late. I've had those cases where someone uh, is on call and for whatever uh, reason they get paged and they don't respond and uh, they get paged a second or a third time and um, finally they, they get around to, to calling back and then they go in and it's now been X hours since they were originally uh, called in. Uh, and the patient has deteriorated because they didn't have that that uh, necessary care that should have been provided. Uh, we're also on the on the hook for that as well. So in terms of who's responsible for what, um, if the ER doctor reasonably relies upon the specialist opinion on the telephone to discharge the patient, I would argue the ER doctor should document that he had a phone conversation with a doctor on call, and that ultimately this is the person who has the background, training, and experience to make this determination. Because I think if the ER doctor just, you know, has this informal conversation, never documents it, and the patient has a problem, uh, it may be challenging for that ER doctor to, uh, to save himself or herself. Uh, conversely, I think if uh, the, the doctor, the specialist doctor who's on call makes a determination not to come in, they probably should also document their rationale. What were the facts as they were um, presented to them from the ER doctor at the time so that they made a reasonable decision to believe the patient was safe to go home and come back and be seen a few hours later? I mean, I hate, I hate to say document, 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 but everybody knows in the medical legal world, if it wasn't documented, it, it didn't happen and memories fade. And when they fade, it becomes a formula for a circular firing squad. Um, ultimately, the only entity that will win will be the plaintiff in that particular situation. So, um, absolutely. Let, let's talk a little bit about this patient or any patient that says, "Thanks for the advice, but I'm not following it." Here is it was advised to to have surgery at the original facility, and <laughs> the patient for whatever reason says no i want to go someplace else um how do you advise people to to handle a patient who has gone against medical advice i think there's a very formal process for managing against medical advice so look the truth is is that if a patient is competent so the first step is trying to identify is this patient competent but let's assume they are competent 
you you actually cannot treat a patient against their will if they're competent. You cannot treat it. Now, there are exceptions. We won't go into those exceptions. But for the most part, if a patient is competent, understands the risk, benefits, and options of ignoring medical care, you cannot touch them. If you touch them after they told you, I know exactly what am I get, getting into, I know I could die, um, I'm going to leave this facility, um, and, and you force them to receive unwanted care, they can and will successfully sue you for battery. Battery is what's called an intentional tort. Often it's not covered by your professional liability policy. Um, so let me give a prototypical example, Jehovah's Witness and blood transfusion. So it's not so much against medical advice, but the principle still holds. Here, uh, the patient has come to see typically a surgeon said, um, I, I need surgery, but here are the rules. Do not give me any blood transfusion. It, against, it goes against my religious beliefs. I hope you will, uh, in fact, I trust you will honor that uh, request. I'm giving you permission to do this aortic resection uh, or aortic replacement procedure. You cannot give me any blood transfusion products. And we, we can define exactly what I, mean, uh, what I mean by blood transfusion, but I'm holding you to your word. Now, the surgeon can come back and say, I don't feel comfortable or confident to manage your expectations here um, because you could die. But there are certainly are surgeons in the country who are comfortable dealing with uh, um, high-risk operations on Jehovah's Witnesses, and they will not give blood products. And the patient will sign a document saying, I recognize that without a blood transfusion, it is possible I will die, and that is my choice. So in that particular situation, if you take the job, if you decide you're going to operate on that particular patient, you, you got to honor your word, um, meaning that don't give blood transfusions, even if that patient ultimately dies. That is the understanding a competent person will expect. So the first analysis is, is the patient competent? Do they understand the import of refusing care? And all sorts of things enter into that equation. Does the patient have a psychiatric history? Um, is the patient high on drugs or drunk? Or is the patient so sick that they don't have the cognitive ability to understand what informed refusal means? And the answer is, well, I don't know. You, you need to make an individual assessment and document how and why you believe the patient is competent to to refuse. And the more detail you put into that informed refusal, the more likely it will withstand scrutiny if the patient has a bad outcome and ultimately they come back and try uh, to see you. So again, leaving against medical advice is more than a document. It's more than a piece of paper. I know that people say, okay, if you leave, you have to sign this piece of paper and you think that's the end of it. The piece of paper is analogous to informed consent. Informed consent is a process, not a document. Informed refusal or leaving against medical advice is a process. It's not a document. In fact, many times the patient won't sign it. They basically say, I'm out of here. You can't keep me. Goodbye. And you say, hey, sign this paper. And they say, I'm not going to sign anything. Well, that's, that's okay. Just document that the patient refused to sign the particular uh, document. But the the key metric in terms of leaving against medical advice is, is the patient competent? 
to make the decision? Do they understand the risk of um, avoiding medical treatment and what the, the challenges are? And I actually want to add a couple of details because there are some misunderstandings related to leaving against medical advice. There's, there's this concept that if a patient signs out AMA, that the insurance carrier, Blue Cross, Aetna, United Health, will not pay the bill. And so I know that some facilities tell the patient, hey, if you sign out against AMA, you're going to be responsible personally for this giant bill that you know you can't afford. But it turns out that that's not the case legally, meaning that if care has already been rendered and you have an insurance policy, they're on the hook for paying the bills up to and including the time that you sign out against medical advice. And apparently a study was done on this in the past looking at whether carriers pay out for AMA patients. And there were a handful of patients where the bills weren't paid, but they were mostly due to clerical errors. They weren't due to a policy by the health insurance company saying we don't pay the bills for people that sign out AMA. So these are some of the issues related to a patient refusing care. What does that mean in this particular case where a patient says that he didn't want to follow the doctor's advice? Um, it meant that they should be held accountable for the outcome or the consequences of their their decision. It doesn't mean you need to treat them poorly. I would I would treat them the way you would treat any other patient. So if for example a patient wants to um, not be admitted to the hospital and you would otherwise give a similarly situated patient antibiotics and pain medication, you should give that patient antibiotics and pain medication. Um, but I wouldn't cut corners. I wouldn't do a half-assed job in terms of treatment. So 10 years ago, for, or I think 15 years ago, we had a brisk debate on a patient that presented to the emergency room with signs and symptoms of appendicitis, right lower quadrant pain, fever, um, nausea and vomiting, et cetera. And the patient comes in with a paper saying in Europe, they can treat this by watching and giving antibiotics. And Certainly 15 years ago, the standard of care was surgical treatment. Uh, appendicitis was a surgical condition. And even today, it's frequently treated as a surgical condition, but I think the needle has moved. And uh, certainly for early um, appendicitis, it's not a crazy idea uh, to treat the patient with antibiotics. But in this particular vignette, the question was, patient shows up with a paper, says they don't have the money to uh, to reimburse the facility for the procedure. They don't have health insurance. So what do you do? And the question was, do you give this patient antibiotics if it's not the standard of care, um, you know, as a half-assed measure to tide the patient over? Or do you refuse to, you know, provide anything to the patient? Or do you give the patient reassurance that you'll figure out a way to, uh, to take care of them? Th these are very difficult questions. These are not simple questions. And you often, you will see patients who want to leave temporarily um, for all types of reasons. They may be taking care of a child at home. They may be taking care of an elderly parent. Um, they may have a, a dog at home that needs to be fed. So, I mean, you don't have to become a social worker, but you can certainly see how complicated this can become. I think that it is dangerous to try to 
use financial arguments to coerce a patient into receiving care, which is what I was hearing when you were talking about, well, if you leave against medical advice, then you know you may have to pay for all this, but if you consent, then your your insurance carrier is gonna pick up all of this, right? One, it seems to me that we've crossed the line from practicing medicine to practicing law, because now we seem to be advising on on legal issues and financial responsibility issues. And, and two, I think that there's very much an issue about is it appropriate to push your agenda onto onto the patient? If you've determined that the patient is competent, that he or she can make their own decisions, then you present the facts and they make their decision. Um, and you shouldn't try to uh, to coerce. I don't believe. I mean, it's not any different than patients who are not compliant with their medication. If you give the patient a prescription for treatment of blood pressure or hypertension, and the patient decides not to fill the prescription, you can't force the patient to take the medication against their will. I mean, everybody understands that and recognizes that. And so as long as the patient is making informed refusal in terms of what they do and do not want, um, I think you're reasonably safe. And this is America. You can't force someone to receive care they don't want as long as they understand the risk benefits and options and they assume the risk if they elect a, a different course of action than you're recommending all right i think we're out of time today um thanks so much for joining us i think the take-home messages um in this particular case are pretty simple if you elect to treat a patient conservatively you should document the rationale as well as timing for follow-up decision making make sure those who are helping you including the nurses for example know what signs of trouble are and who to call and when to call so um tread carefully i think the other message is that just make sure that people understand that your patients understand the type of care you're going to offer and if there's a language barrier make sure you solve that potentially with an interpreter well said and with that we bid adieu. Before we end, a brief shout out to our sponsor, Vive Funds. Vive Funds provides unique, passive multifamily investment opportunities that they vet and bring to you as an investor. Reach out to Vina Jetty to see how partnering with Vive can help you reach your real estate investment goals at drpodcastnetwork.com slash Vive Funds. And with that, we're at the end of our broadcast. Thanks for joining us. In closing, a few messages. If you're an existing member of medical or dental justice and you find yourself on the receiving end of a medical legal threat, please contact us at 1-877-MEDJUST. That's 1-877-MEDJUST or 633-5878. Our STAT hotline is a service offered to all current members. It's designed to get your urgent medical legal questions answered ASAP. Members can also access a plethora of exclusive medical legal resources by logging into their members-only page, which can be accessed by our website, medicaljustice.com. Now, we want to protect as many doctors as possible. If one of your colleagues is in trouble, please refer him. When a current member of medical justice refers a colleague and that colleague becomes a member, you both receive a month of free protection. To refer a colleague, write to us at infonews, that's I-N, Epizen Frank O, 
infonews at medicaljustice.com. That's infonews at medicaljustice.com. Now, if you're not an existing member of medical or dental justice, but want to bulletproof your practice from medical legal threats, our admin, Wendy Cates, is your best resource for information about our protection plans, implementation, best practices, and pricing models. Wendy can be reached directly at 336-358-5587. We offer discounts for large groups and protect doctors of all specialties in all states. Now, before we close, one last request. If you enjoyed this episode, please write a review on your preferred podcast provider and share our podcast with your colleagues. Reviews help maintain our podcast visibility, which in turn helps us reach a broader audience. This helps us protect more doctors. Thank you for joining us this week. We hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Medical Liability Minute.